when you think about uh, what we do, it's really kind of an amazing thing. We, we gather together once a week to study, uh, worship God. Maybe think about this. This is really kind of a strange thing. Uh, God, the God, the only God. He really is there. We really do know him. He really did give us a book. This is really, if you think about it from the world's perspective, they'd be, oh, yeah, uh-huh, sure, sure. This is what we're about. And we believe this is not just a, a uh, ancient text. This concept of God is not just an abstract philosophical thought. It's a real God. And the Bible's given to really teach us about who he is and how we can know his will. And as we get into it, you realize a couple of different aspects about God, obviously very multifaceted God. He's got uh, two sets of attributes, theologians will tell us. There's the incommunicable, it's a big old word, attributes. That's like his uh, omnipresence. You know, he's everywhere at once. I wish I could just be in two places at once. He's everywhere at once. He's in the past. He's in the present. He's in the future all at the exact same time. He doesn't expect us to be. Uh, we can't be. It's just who he is. He's omniscient. He's all-powerful. We're not all-powerful. He, he's he's sovereign. There, there's he's, he's infinite. These are things he doesn't expect us to be. It's who he is. Uh, incommunicable attributes. But then there are those communicable attributes. These are things that he is perfectly, but we as his followers seek to reflect. We're supposed to reflect. We're commanded to reflect his justice, his love, his compassion. And so what we want to focus on this this morning is this idea of, of his uh, compassion. Because I would say that that God's heart, as we go over, we can go over and over in scripture, God's heart is compassionate. And so if ours is not, though it's commanded to be, if we're following him, I would say our heart is kind of broken. We have spiritual heart disease. If our heart does not reflect his, it's not compassionate. Now, physical heart disease, if you've got that, in time that's going to manifest itself, right? Sooner or later you're going to know that you've got this. It's, it's a big deal. But spiritual heart disease is a little bit different. Because you can live a long time physically by having a very poor, dead spiritual heart. Um, let me just say this. As you think about spiritual heart disease, compassion, what that, what that looks like, two aspects to this, this compassion thing. One is it is a, an obsession with with the uh, spiritual condition of others. It's an obsession. We're not talking a fleeting thing. I feel bad for people once in a while. We're not talking about something that's on the, the back burner on simmer. We're talking it's on both front burners, high flame. Uh, it is constant. I'm obsessed with the spiritual condition of others. Uh, a spiritually healthy heart is not just that, but it's an absence of preoccupation with my own well-being, basically. So it's an obsession with others. It's an absence of preoccupation with with myself. That is a spiritually healthy heart. Now, some of us might say, well, you know, I wish so-and-so was here because they really need to hear this, right? They're, they need some compassion. Well, I don't know how God's physiology works, but uh, our heart somehow spiritually is connected to our eyesight because if our heart is bad, we just don't see it. It's something that the person sitting next to you struggles with, right? But you do not. Well, you don't have this issue because, you know, a- after all, 
I have a good spiritual diet. You know, I'm always reading Lakato and I'm listening to Andy Stanley and I've got a good spiritual intake, so I'm doing well. Or I've got good spiritual exercise. You know, I'm helping with the children, I'm on the board or the mercy team. I'm, I'm, I'm doing well. Or I'm always praying for this place and giving sacrificially and I got the fish thing on the back of my car and so I'm doing great. You know, spiritually I'm, I'm, how dare you think that I might have spiritual art disease? Our patient this morning uh, thought the same things about himself. Matter of fact, he had one up on us because he was handpicked by God Almighty to be his prophet. And so he could have been thinking, you know, I'm, I'm doing well. I'm doing great. Uh, if you went to the doctor and the doctor said, you, you know, I've got bad news and good news. Bad news is your heart's a mess. It's really, we're getting dangerous here. Good news is I've got this procedure, I've got this pill, whatever else, and if you take it, complete, 100% healing, I'm guessing that most of us would put that to the top of our list and say, all right, we wouldn't need to think about it, we wouldn't need to consider it, well, maybe I'll do, we would do it right away, it would be there, because you don't mess with your heart, somehow spiritual heart disease is kind of like, maybe I'll deal with it, maybe I won't, I would suggest that for you, for me, this needs to be on top of the list as well. Because our effectiveness in this life is dependent on this. So what we want to look at this morning, book of Jonah, it's a small book, but we're going to see God's prescription. So we might have a a robust, healthy, spiritual heart, understanding God's. So if you've got your Bibles, if you'll turn with me to um, book of Jonah, it's towards the end of the Old Testament, it's a little small, itty-bitty book, um, Jonah. And we'll start right in at the beginning. It's a good place to start, right? Chapter 1, verse 1. If you got, again, if you got your Bibles, if you got your devices, you might want to get there because we're not going to have all the texts up on the screen. We'll have some of them, but we won't have all of them, so you'll want to follow that. Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. It says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. Maybe Jonah was thinking, you know what? I just happen to have the exact amount that the fare cost. Obviously, it's God's will that I go to Tarshish. You know, the, whatever the serendipitous situations in our lives, if they ever go against what God has commanded, uh, clearly we don't go by them. We go by what he's commanded. So God has told him to go. So just to, let's look at just the characters real quick in the story. You got Nineveh, right? Now, now Nineveh was a unique deal. Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrians. Nineveh was like the Washington, D.C. for Assyria. Uh, they were the new bully on the block. Uh, they had eaten up lots of little lands and little cities, and they are now eyeing Israel. With the you know, kind of grumbling stomachs, they're kind of wanting to go down that way. They're 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 the, the new bully on the block. They are also a very wicked place, uh, very 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 wicked. I would guess that in ancient literature, by their own statements, there's not too many places that are more wicked. From their own chronicles, from their from from their Assyrian chronicles, right? This is what they say about themselves. Uh, they said. Uh, I cut off their heads 
and formed them into pillars. He said, Bubo, son of Bubba, I flayed in the city of Arbella and I spread his skin upon the city wall. I flayed all the chief men who had revolted and I covered the pillar with their skins. He says, uh, I cut off the limbs of the officers, the royal officers who had rebelled. This is the king. He says, 3,000 captives I've burned with fire. He says, from some I cut off their hands and their fingers, and from others I cut off their noses, their ears, and their fingers. Of many I put out their eyes. The the, uh, Assyrians were, were, to our knowledge, the most cruel, inhumane warriors. And what they would do is they would come to the larger cities. The larger ones had walls around them. And they would just put their troops all around the city. No one gets in or out. They lay siege to the city. And, and they'd knock on your door and they'd say, we would like to come in and take over. And if you said, I don't think so, you got them really ticked off. Because as you can imagine, supporting them and paying for them and keeping them fed and keeping the guys happy for the months it would take to starve you out, they would just, it costs a lot, they would get really ticked off. And so in time, when they busted through, and they would in time, what they, they would do this kind of stuff, horrific, inhumane, cruel tortures to the people. And their hope was that the next city they went to, the folk would hear what they did and they would open the doors and let them in. So outside Nineveh, they were a terribly warring, inhumane people. Inside Nineveh, child sacrifice, immorality, like you cannot imagine. It's terrible, terrible, terrible. Again, I don't know if you can imagine a city uh, more awful, a group of people more inhumane. Nineveh was also a great city, it tells us, 120,000. And again, in our idea of Tokyo and New York and Mexico City and stuff, 120,000 is nothing. But again, this is a walled city. At this point in history, Jerusalem at its apex is going to get to be 24,000, 120,000. Some would say that that's just kids, 500,000. This is a big, big place. It's also great to God. Jonah is another character here. Jonah was a prophet. Jonah was a mouthpiece from God. He was supposed to represent God. Jonah ministered. You know how you had southern Israel. They called that Judah. And northern Israel. They called that Israel. He ministered in the north. He ministered about 750 B.C. He, one of his contemporaries was a guy by the name of Amos. Amos just wrote, wrote a book as well. Uh, but you don't want to miss this about Jonah. Even though I think this is a historical, say, it, this is a historical book, still Jonah represents the people of God. So you're in this story. He represents Israel. He represents the, the, the people of God. Third, we'll say, uh, character in the story, but uh, you need to know is the nation of Israel. Now, it doesn't specifically say some of these things I'm going to mention to you in the book of Jonah, but it's what's going on historically that we need to understand if we're going to interpret this right. Israel right now is, is, is doing well. I mean, they're doing very well. Not since Solomon have they been doing so well. In 2 Kings 14.25, it's when we first hear about Jonah. It says, he restored, he is the king. Guy's name is Jeroboam II, not a good guy. He restored the border of Israel from Lebo Hamath as far as the Sea of the Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, who was from Gath Heifer. You, you might not know where Lebo Hamath is, but what, it's, what happened 
is Israel was kind of wondering, what should we do here? And Jonah steps up, northern kingdom, and he says, people, we can win. We can beat them. We can expand the borders. You just have to believe in yourselves and God. Let's go. And so the people, they went. And so they, you know what happened? They, they come in contact with the Edomites, wipe them out. They're going, wow. They take their land. They come in contact with the Arameans, wipe them out. Take their land. They actually have a, a skirmish with Nineveh, Assyria. And they beat them. The Syrians have to run back to Nineveh and close their, their doors, their tails between their legs. And so these guys are going, yeah, yeah. And what are they thinking about Jonah? This guy's a rock star. We didn't think we could do this. And Jonah talked us into it. And so Jonah's being great and they're doing great. And, and Israel is just powerful right now. It's a time of, of power and plenty. They are just they are more successful financially, militarily, politically, their influence over that part of the world ever since Solomon. They are also, though, a place of incredible pride and incredible depravity. Remember, I said that Jonah was uh, contemporary for, from, with Amos? Well, when you read Amos, it talks about the stuff going on in Israel. You got stuff like witchcraft. You got stuff like immorality. You got idolatry. You, you've got luxurious living while, while many people starve to death. You've got the, the marginalizing and oppressing the, the, the poor. And so Israel, be with me. This is where it gets kind of personal. Israel's got all these blessings going on, but they're doing poorly. Here's a key, key principle in Scripture. We cannot mistake the blessings of God for the approval of God. Just because the sun is shining, just because my health is doing okay, just because life is doing all right, does not mean that spiritually we're doing all right. And so these these folk were making some huge mistakes here. One was that that confusing the blessings of God with the with the uh, approval of God. We don't we don't want to get to a place where He has to get us so down. That's the only way we'll turn back to him. Another mistake they were making is that they uh, liked the gifts more than the giver. There's nothing wrong with liking. I like like, gifts are good. I like gifts. But but, uh, they began to long for the gifts. They began to expect the gifts. They began to require the gifts. They began to demand the gifts. So much so that if they didn't have the gifts, they became very uh, depressed. They, they, They... the giver was just a, a means to an end, but the end was the gifts. That's uh, mistakes. It's easy, easy to make, right? So these, this is what was going on here, and you got to kind of understand that to, to draw a deal. So Jonah is kind of high fiving with Jeroboam the second, the king, and Syria was on the run, and and Israel was in hot pursuit, and maybe Jonah and Jeroboam are talking about when we get to Nineveh, maybe we'll take prisoners, maybe not, according to how we're feeling. And all of a sudden, God kind of taps on Jonah's shoulder and says, Jonah. I know you're thinking about Nineveh. You know, so am I. Jonah, I want you to, to go to Nineveh. Leave the army behind and just you go and preach. And Jonah's like, what? Jonah knows when you preach, preaching in the scripture is always redemptive. The goal is to bring people a shift in their heart, help them to see and understand God. And he's going, oh man. 
what are you, what are you, what are you, what are you doing? So he doesn't go to Nineveh, right? He tries to go to Tarshish, which is modern-day Spain. Matter of fact, he gets on a boat, and he goes as far as he can the other direction. I think we got a map. Uh, got Nineveh on the Tigris. It's about 350-plus miles. You can't see it, but it's go west a long distance, and that's Spain. That's Tarshish. He was trying to get as far away from God. He's going the exact opposite direction of where he was supposed to, where he was supposed to go. And then in verse 4, though, it kind of happens when you run away from God. It says, but the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid. Now keep in mind, these mariners were skilled, uh, hard-weathered seamen. They didn't get afraid when there was a storm, so there's something unique about this storm. The mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, And they hurled cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us so that we will not perish. What the author's doing is he's drawing a huge contrast between these pagan sailors and between Jonah. Do you, do you see this? The pagan sailors, what are they, they're all praying. What's Jonah doing? He's sleeping. The, the pagan sailor's captain comes to Jonah and says, for crying out loud, pray. Jonah doesn't pray. Yeah, not going to do it. And what God is... is Letting us see is this huge gap between the people who know God and how they're responding and how these pagans are responding. And so Jonah's not saying anything. He's got this storm. He knows what's going on. This is all his fault. But he's not saying anything. He's not going to say a word until he gets caught. And so they draw straws, and Jonah draws the small straw, and they say, tell us what's going on. And so Jonah says, yes, it's me. It's all my fault. It's what's going on. In verse uh, 11, then they said to him, Well, what shall we do to you that the sea may, may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And Jonah said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will be quiet, quiet down for you. For I know it's because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land. They didn't want to throw Jonah in, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O oh Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. Lay not on us innocent blood for you, O oh Lord, have done as you pleased. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging, and the men feared the Lord God exceedingly. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord, and they made vows. A couple things in this. You see, God's keep that contrast is still going. The, the pagan sailors, they heard to cast Jonah. They didn't want to cast Jonah. They rode with everything they had to get. To, they wanted to protect Jonah. They cared for Jonah. But Jonah is willing to let the ship go down and let all those guys drown. He didn't care for them at all. You also see, see, this is interesting. They, they say, what, what, what do you need to do, Jonah? Jonah knew what he needed to do because the vocabulary of a prophet is not, not real, real huge. 
And one of the, the words that the prophets use over and over and over again is the word shuv. It's the word repent. And Jonah knows that when you repent, God will relent. We're going to see just how much he knows this, but he knows that, that, that what he needs to do is not be hurled into the sea. He needs to be hurled on his knees. He needs to repent. And if he does, then everything will be taken care of. But Jonah would rather die than repent. You know, know of anybody like that? A kind, hard-headed. Just, I'd rather die than give in to God. That's where Jonah said. Now look at the sailors again. They are worshiping. They are praying. They are caring. They they, they are repenting before they sin. Here, right? Oh God, we're going to do this bad thing, but before we're going we're to repent before we do it because it just is what it is. These, these contrasts between the pagan sailors and God's people—it's pretty substantial. Verse 17 of chapter 1, it says, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. If you're following in your text, I would highlight or circle that word appointed. That's a key, it's a key word. In chapter 4, let me just skip ahead for just a second. Beginning in verse uh, 6. Just listen to this. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it God made it to come up over Jonah that it might be shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when the dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. This, this is not about Jonah and the whale. This is about Jonah and the whale, Jonah and the weed, Jonah and the worm, Jonah and the wind. It's, it's God doing whatever he he has to do to get Jonah's attention. Now, don't, don't miss this, because all of these things are natural things. God works in natural stuff to get our attention, but we don't. We, sometimes we're like a Jonah. We just miss it. Now, the, the whale, perhaps the biggest animal that they were aware of, when that, that whale will obey God. The worm, little maggot, probably the smallest animal, but it will obey God. The weed, inanimate weed, it will obey God. Think about wind. What in the world is wind? It will obey God, but God's people who are in relationship with him, who supposedly love him, who he had loved and he has given blessings to, no way. Not going to do it. They're not going to do it. So it's drawn this contrast, and we really see the contrast in chapter two. We're not going to have the, we don't have this on the screen, but this is it's just a prayer in chapter two. It's a short prayer, only nine verses, but it's an excellent prayer on one level because there's lots and lots of thanksgiving in this prayer. Jonah, very, 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 very thankful for what God has done. But in this nine verse prayer, you find first person pronouns 23 times. I, 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 me, I, 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 my, I, me, my, my, my. This prayer is all about Jonah. Now, Jonah, it's like, it's a good thing. He's very thankful for what God has given him. That's a good thing. We should be thankful for what God has given us. But what's really key in this prayer is what's not here. There's not a word of repentance. It's not one line. I'm sorry, I really messed up. I'm sorry, God told me what to do, and I blew him off. 
There's not even a subtle kind of thing that says, you know, thank God for his forgiveness. It's not that there. Again, it's a reminder for us. We want, and it's good to be thankful for God's stuff that he's done for us. And, and let me ask you, as far as vocabulary for your own spiritual life, is Thanksgiving up there? Good, that's wonderful. Is repentance up there? Well, not as much. And I'm guessing you are kind of like me. It's probably not because there's nothing we need to repent from. We're just not listening to what God has for us. We're just focusing on, on the good things. Remember, compassion is an obsession with others, not preoccupation with myself. But Jonah, preoccupied with what God has given him. It's a good thing. But no, no repentance. Chapter 2, verse 10, it says, The Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon dry land. There's a word picture for you, isn't it? Now, some folk think that, oh yeah, he just kind of vomited Jonah into Nineveh. Well, he couldn't have done that, right? Because remember our map? Nineveh is an inward city. And so for the whale to get to Nineveh, he's going to have to go through the Mediterranean. He's going to have to go down around the Atlantic. He's going to have to cut underneath Africa, come up through the Indian Ocean, through the Persian Gulf, get into the Tigris. I mean, there's thousands of miles in three days. That that fish is hauling, man. And there's going to be like G's, all kinds of G's that Jonah's going to be stuck in the tail of that fish as this thing's going. That's an option. He could have done or he could have, I guess, you know, the, the fish could have kind of <laughs> and just shot Jonah 350 miles till he got to where he was supposed to fall. I doubt that that happened. Maybe, maybe, maybe. I'm thinking that Jonah was probably cast up by the fish right where he started in Joppa. Isn't it normal when we decide to walk away from God? pain and grief and issues and problems and then we finally end up in the same place we started Jonah gets there and he says yeah I guess I gotta go to Nineveh what's his, what's his choice right now right? I guess I guess I gotta go to Nineveh and so in chapter 3 it says then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time saying arise go to Nineveh that great city and call out against it the message that I tell you so Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city three days journey in breadth Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey he called out Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Now that's this message. That's it. You can imagine the folk would say, well, what are we supposed to do? That's up to you. I'm not dealing with that. I'm just letting you know 40 days and you're done. You're toast. You're dead man. It stinks to be you. 40 days and you're out of here. That's it. That's it. That's his message. Not very secret sensitive, right? That was that. that that's his message. Crazy thing for me is the response. Can you imagine if you, if you, you would, you, could you take an evangelism class where they would say, give that as a message and walk away? No one's going to respond, right? But here what happens. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and they put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. And the word reached the king of Nineveh. This is the guy that was fraying everybody and flaying everybody and doing all kinds of bad things. The word reached the king of Nineveh and he rose from his throne. He removed his robe. He covered himself with sackcloth. He sat in ashes and he issued a proclamation. It published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock taste anything. So the animals have got to fast on this thing too, right? And let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent 
and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. I mean, he didn't, God is not even mentioned in, in Jonah's story, his, his message. And yet the people somehow, they know, we need to turn to God. We need to, we need to repent here. And so you get in the picture, right? You get in the picture. In chapter one, you had the pagan sailors repent. Uh, you got God's people in chapter two, no repentance. Chapter three, you got a whole city repenting. The worst city in the known world at this point. Completely, everybody, the king, the little people, the animals, everybody repenting. With it, you know, the, the, another contrast that we see is the message was so Ambiguous, non-seeker sensitive, non- but look at the message that God had been given to Jonah. God's going to appear to Jonah twice, once in chapter one, once in chapter two. He's going to appear to him twice more in chapter four. He has all these object lessons with Jonah along the way. Jonah never responds. Never responds. These guys get a very ambiguous type of message and the whole city is, is repenting. The folk who ought to be listening aren't 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 listening. It says in verse ten of chapter three, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil way, God relented because we know when we repent, God relents. He repented of the, the he relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it to them. Chapter four, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly. God's relenting, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord. And now he's going to finally talk to God, but it's not going to be good. Oh, Lord, is this not what I said when I was in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. You want to know why I didn't obey you? Why I didn't go to Tarshish? Why I went the other way? Because I knew you were going to do something like this. I, I knew you were going to do this. That's what, he, that's what he says. Because I know, knew that you are a gracious God. He's quoting Exodus 34. And merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Not a little bit of steadfast love. Abounding in a steadfast love for other people. And you relent from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, take my life from me. For it's better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you? Do well to be angry, Jonah. This is fascinating. Lord speaks to Jonah directly. I've never had that. And Jonah ignores him. God's people ignore. Now, we would never ignore God, right? When we know what we should be doing, we're not about to ask what would Jesus do because we kind of know what he probably not. We we will ignore what God has for us. God's people would, would ignore Jonah knows that when you preach his word, there's a possibility of repentance. Maybe Jonah is, because one could say, Jonah, why are you so ticked off? You just had a a revival. Largest in in the world, 120,000 people just came to know know Christ, as it were. What's What's the problem? Well, if this was just about the Ninevites being nice and not attacking anybody for a while, I think Jonah would probably be okay, but this is not what they were thinking. Maybe Jonah had an, an over-realized sense of nationalism. He, he, he remembers that God came to Abram, and God made promises to Abram, and, and, and those promises would come to the whole Jewish nation, and those were promises of protection and jo- promises of blessing. And he knows whoever gets God gets the blessings, and so maybe he's thinking, God, are you abandoning Israel? For Assyria? God, are you going to leave us? For them? Maybe he knows his people have not repented. 
But he just watched all of Nineveh do it. And he's, maybe, maybe that's what's going on in his mind. Maybe it's self-preservation because if he would have walked into uh, uh, Nineveh, he would have proclaimed this, he would have walked out, and they would not have repented, and God would have blown up the whole city. When he got back home, wouldn't he have looked cool? <laughs> yeah, I just took out Nineveh by myself. Just not a problem. Just God and I, we, we blew him up. And he would be lauded. <laughs> but now he goes back home. And you got people are going to be saying, Jonah, Jonah, whose side are you on? You idiot. You took our God and you gave our God to the enemy. You gave our secret weapon to the enemy. What are you thinking? He knows he can't go back home. Maybe, maybe he's just got this merciless justice thing going on. These Ninevites were wicked people. They, they pillaged and they killed and they burned and they humiliated and they mocked God even and they deserved to die. Maybe this is what, maybe this is what he's thinking as well. So God gives him a case study. Jonah, verse five, four, chapter four, verse five, it says, Jonah, by the way, this is not just a missionary story. That's what people say. So this is a missionary story. If it's a missionary story and all these people came to know uh, God or Christ, as it were, uh, then we wouldn't have chapter four. Chapter four is here because the, 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 Apex of this story is just being driven home right here. It says, Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he could should see what would become of the city. He's open that God's going to change his mind and blow up the city. He knows he can't go home. Might as well just do that. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind. It's a Scirocco. And the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die. Jonah's going, I just want to die. This guy's a year and a half here, isn't he? It's better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And Jonah said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which, which came into being in the night and perished in the night. And should not I pity Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also many cattle. He's saying, Jonah, Jonah, how are you doing today, Jonah? And Jonah says, I'm doing, I'm doing terrible. It's just life is just awful. I'm very sad. I'm depressed. And God says, well, why? Jonah says, because of my plant. My plant is dead. I like that plant. It was important to me. I enjoyed it. And, and God says, you mean that stupid weed? It's not a stupid weed. And God says, there's millions of them all over the desert. That's not for me. It was mine and it was important. And I, I like this thing and it brought me comfort. And, and, uh, and so God stops him and says, Jonah, let me tell you what I'm seeing here. You, you have got plenty of anger when... Your personal comforts are taken away. You got plenty of tears and frustration when your status is reduced, when you're knocked off your pedestal a little bit, when you are limited, when what's best for Jonah doesn't happen. But Jonah, do you have any tears for Nineveh? 
Man, I got 120,000 people. And you're crying over a stupid weed. I got people who were made in my image, children, and, and, and they're, they're on their way to, to an eternity without me. Jonah, don't you care? What kind of God would I be if I didn't care for that? Don't you care? God would think, look at us and say, what is it that gets you upset? We get so upset over so many different stupid little things or our weed, it's or my comfort, what I want. And God says, are you serious? I've got 250,000 people in the greater Erie area who are on their way to a Christless eternity and you've got no concern for that? How about tears for that? What are you thinking? What's going on? If you, if you have a healthy heart that reflects me, it's going to be there. And so as I look at, at this book of Jonah, a couple of applications. One is we need to, to have God's heart for, of compassion, which, keep in mind, is, is a preoccupation or it's an obsession with, with the welfare, spiritual welfare of another, and it's an absence of preoccupation with my own, my own welfare. We need to have that x-ray vision. You know, I don't know if Jonah just saw these stinking Ninevites. We need to have x-ray vision, though, that looks beyond uh, the costumes. You know, the, 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 the hair. The, uh, whether you wear your jewelry around your neck or pierced in your face, whether your hair is blue or, or whether you're bald, whether you're driving, whatever you're driving, whatever accoutrements of success and luxury you may have or may not have. God's people, with a heart of compassion, look through that into a person's heart. And we wonder, I wonder where they're at with the Lord. So who's your number one nemesis? Who's your Is it your, your boss? Is it your... Uh, person at, at school? Is it uh, uh, ex-friend? Is it ho- hopefully not, but maybe somebody in your own home? Who's your number one nemesis? Your enemy? Do you see them with eyes of compassion? Do you, do you wonder about the spiritual condition of President Trump and Melania and Ivanka and Tiffany and Barron? Or are we just going to rail on them? I'm not saying that everybody's perfect. It's just seeing people through God's So we need to practice heart of compassion. But number two is we need to experience God's compassion. The message that went out to the Ninevites that God was trying to drive into Jonah, but went out to the the Ninevites, they responded. You know, the crazy thing is, is 750 years later, God sends another prophet, his son Jesus, and Jesus would say, someone greater than Jonah is here. And, and Jesus' invitation, his message is a little bit clearer than, than Jonah's, but his message was, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Right? He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in spirit, and you'll find rest for your souls because my yoke is easy, my burden is light. You know what he's saying? He's saying, you think it's so difficult to follow me. You've got this mindset, I don't know, had to come from hell where it's just so hard to follow Jesus, and I just don't want to do that. And Jesus is saying, you just don't have a clue. Who do you think I am? It's, it's, it's God looking into Nineveh, looking into us, saying, I care. I, I'm concerned. I love. And so maybe... This morning, you would need to respond to Jesus' invitation to come to him. Maybe you've been off for some time. Maybe you need to come 
to him, you know what we're going to do in, in a moment. So we're going to pray. The folk will take up the offering, but the band's going to come out. And they're going to, to, to sing. And I, uh, would you please listen to the words of their uh, song? And then here's the deal. Where you sit, you can come back to him right now this morning. But let me challenge you with something that is just, you know, if you know me, you know, this is not necessarily me. But, but this morning, if God is moving in your heart, you know you need to come back. I want to challenge you to do this. To get up and come up front and pray. So no big deal. You come you can just kneel and pray here. And you might think, well, is God more up here than he is in my chair? No, 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 no. But when we take where we are and what we're doing physically, and we couple that with what's going on spiritually, well, there's power with that. I want to encourage you to go that direction. Let me, let me pray for us.